from B Media Production. This is Business Essentials, practical advice and ideas to grow your business. Welcome to this episode of Business Essentials Podcast. I'm Peter Letts. The new Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement will, we're told, bring significant benefits to Australian importers and exporters. There are risks in the detail, of course, and plenty of other considerations, given the number of free trade agreements we already have with so many of the member countries. And our second largest trading partner, the United States, pulled out of the agreement anyway, for now. It coincides with rising trade tensions and talk of tariff wars between the United States and China. Interesting times indeed for global trade, says Russell Wees, Customs and Global Trade Specialist with Hunt & Hunt Lawyers. Talking with Heather Dawson, Russell puts things in perspective, starting with that US-China trade conflict. Where does that leave importers and exporters in Australia? In Australia, like every other developed economy, we'll be caught in the middle because as much as it may be just two countries, supply chains these days are global. The goods coming out of China, they're going to have Australian iron ore in them. They're going to have other manufactured goods from Australia in them. Half of them probably have goods from the US in them. You know, So the US <laughs> is going to be imposing tariffs on goods that are helping their own exporters. So it will just flow on it and hurt everyone and hopefully the threats are enough to cause change without the two countries having to implement these significant trade barriers. It'll really be winding back the clock and it will be quite a difficult time and an uncertain time for exporters and importers. I um, I can't imagine what it would be like entering into an, a sales agreement for goods at one price and you don't expect any duty and while they're on the water on the way to the US, you, you find a 30% tariff gets imposed on them that would no longer be commercially viable. So there's increased risks that we didn't have previously and people are going to have to adjust to that. So it's definitely interesting times. Okay. Well, you've come in today to talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Can you take us back to the start of that agreement? You know, why was it important and who's now in? Yeah, now sure. the deal's been struck. Yeah, it's an excellent contrast, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, to what we just discussed. It's an agreement between a collection of countries with the goal of liberalising trade, making it easier, removing the, the barriers that are currently in place. And it's had quite a long history and a It started off as an agreement just between four countries and they were just sort of minor countries, New Zealand, Brunei, Singapore and Chile. This is back in 2005. Then Australia jumped on board along with Japan and Canada and other countries. And by the time we got to a first version of the agreement being signed off in February 2016, it included the US and 11 other countries and it was going to cover 40% of global trade. Now this was President Obama pushing this. He saw it as his pivot into Asia. It was the US's chance to write the rules for trade in Asia. So his way of addressing what he saw as the emergence of China was to get in there first, put in place rules that promoted free trade, that promoted um, environmental protections, that promoted certain labour laws, and let the US influence that by being the trendsetter and setting the example. Unfortunately, February 2016 was not really enough time for Obama to then get the laws passed through uh, the US legislator and have the agreement enacted before the elections. And of course, during those election cycles, the Trans-Pacific Partnership became a hot issue. It became seen as everything that's wrong about trade. And both Clinton and Trump 
campaigned against it. We had the situation that Trump won office and when he actually became president in January on the first day, he took the US out of the agreement. So those 11 countries are thinking, well, what do we do now? Um, do we still see value in this agreement? We've done all this work. We've negotiated it for, you know, five years. And surprisingly, it was Japan that really took the lead and to a lesser extent Australia. And they really worked towards developing an, an agreement out of what was left. And there wasn't really that much change. A lot of what they took out from the US version was intellectual property protections that the US had insisted on. They wanted longer IP protections on pharmaceuticals and like the rest of the countries didn't really mind. So they were able to take that out and it became a little less contentious. And then I think it was in January this year, they reached agreement on, we'll call it TPP 11 with 11 countries. And that was signed off formally on the 8th of March. Uh, we've got a few steps to go before it becomes law again. Well, at the moment, we just have an agreement between countries. We don't have it enacted as domestic law. But it's a funny old process that it's gone through, and we've, at least we've ended up with something, and it was worth that continued sort of effort that those countries put in. And, and what's left is significant. We still have in those 11 countries, four of them are in the G20. We've got Canada, Mexico, Australia, and Japan. And then the remaining countries, still some significant countries, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, New Zealand, Chile, Peru, and Brunei. So there's quite a still large amount of trade included there. And it more than anything else, it sends a really important message to the rest of the world that there are still developed countries out there who want to liberalise trade and want to continue in that, that previous framework of let's work together and encourage other countries to engage in free trade by doing so ourselves, as opposed to, I guess, what Trump has done is to say, if you don't engage in what we say a fair trade, we're going to penalise you by increasing protective measures on our own imports. So it's one's that sort of positive reinforcement and the other is trying to um, impose the stick, I guess. Okay. But we already have numerous free trade agreements. So in what ways will the new Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement be an improvement? Yeah, it's a good point because there's overlap there. Um, we already have FTAs with Japan, with a number of the ASEAN countries, which overlaps with this FTA. So we see some improvements in, in a few areas. Some ways there's new members. So we don't have FTAs with Canada and Mexico and they're significant countries to um, not have any sort of free trade agreement with. So that itself is a reason to do it. But also the FTAs we've negotiated with those countries where it's an existing FTA, we didn't have as much power as is the case with the TPP. So just explaining that a little further, when we're negotiating with Japan, what do we as Australia have to offer Japan? Because we already have low duty rates. We're open for investment. So Japan doesn't have to compromise as much to get an FTA with us. But when it's negotiating the TPP and at the time of negotiation believes that it's getting an FTA with the US, it's prepared to reduce its barriers a lot more because it's getting something bigger in return. Now, of course, the US is no longer involved, but luckily Japan didn't turn around and say, well, what we negotiated in that context, we're, we're going to pull away. So what we get under the TPP is we get improved access to Japan, even though we had our own FTA with Japan. And the same holds true for a few other countries, also with Malaysia and Vietnam. And some of the examples we see are around 
the agricultural products going into Japan. We already had good outcomes on beef, but we get better outcomes. Instead of dropping down to, I think it was about 25% under our bilateral FDA with Japan, it goes down to 9% under the TPP. So that's a huge win. We got no concessions around rice under our own FTA with Japan, but under the TPP, there's new opening up of the rice markets into Japan. So there's numerous examples of that. There's other things as well that other FTAs perhaps have focused on trading goods, and that's the case with our FTA with the ASEAN countries. However, the TPP was trying to be more modern and capture more of um, what represents modern trade, and that includes services and investment, government procurement, rules around labour and IP, customs processes. So it, it goes into wider areas of trade. And those benefits are less tangible. When it's good, you can just point to the tariff and it reduces by this percentage. But when it services, um, you're talking more about mutual recognition or this type of service has been restricted to only entities that are owned by companies operating in that country. And now you could perhaps provide that service cross-border. So the examples are harder to sort of give, but it's a general agreement to open up trading services as well. There's other outcomes as well, just more around the ease of use of this FTA. It's a more modern FTA, so less paperwork. There's also the benefit that it's an FTA between multiple countries. So we have um, 11 participants. When we're trying to determine what goods qualify, we can look at content from any of those 11 countries. So it's more able to take into account those multinational supply chains. You're not going to be just excluded from the FTA or the benefits of the FTA just because you have content from, say, Vietnam into a Japanese good, which would be the case if you just looked at that FTA between Japan and Australia. Well, Russell, finally, as a global trade expert, what's your advice to importers and exporters as a result of the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Look, I, I think the first thing is you've got to be proactive about taking advantage of the benefits. People sometimes assume that FTAs apply automatically, and they don't. They're an available concession, but unless you claim them or unless your customer claims them, you'll just pay the general rate. So I think first we've got to do a benefits type assessment. Look at where your goods are going if you're an exporter. Look at where they're coming into if you're an importer and assess which goods qualify for the benefits of the FTA and which goods you're already using other FTAs for. So do that sort of assessment, speak to your customs broker and understand what benefits there may be. Then start working proactively about how we're going to make sure we take advantage of this. That may be talking to your customers, making sure they'll claim the benefit if you're an exporter or if you're an importer, making sure you've got procedures in place with your procurement team to raise the issue with your suppliers and ensure they give you the certificates of origin and the like. And I think just more broadly, building FTAs into your entire strategy. If you're an exporter, it makes sense to look at the FTAs and work out which markets do we just have a competitive advantage against the rest of the world, even if everything else is equal, we've got this advantage just based on tariffs. And in some instances, we're talking about 50% tariffs. So it other people won't be able to match you with that benefit. So FTA shouldn't drive your whole strategy, but they need to be part of the conversation and you definitely should take them into account. Russell Wees, Hunt and Hunt Lawyers. And that ends Business Essentials Podcast. So you don't miss out on future episodes, why not subscribe? And if you found this valuable, we'd love you to leave a review. For further information about us, or if you'd like to listen to more interviews like this one, visit businessessentials.com.au. We hope you've enjoyed Business Essentials Podcast. I'm Peter Letts. Thanks for listening. 
This Business Essentials podcast has been produced by B Media Production, building engagement and adding value through quality audio communication. Thank you.